See how they love one another. In 197 AD, Tertullian wrote a letter to the Roman authorities in which he was pleading for justice for the church. This letter was over 50 pages, over 35,000 words, and the intent was to refute the common charges against the church but also to explain the church's unique beliefs and practices. And Tertullian describes how the church, how the church practices were different from those of the culture around them. With kind of the crescendo, the most compelling thing about the church in contrast to the world was see how they love one another. This is what Tertullian said in his letter, chapter 39, in the event that you're wanting to read it. They are not violent with each other or their enemies. They do not kill their children, even in the womb. They are honest and do not steal. They eat simple foods and live modest lives. They meet one another's needs and the needs of those around them. They are sober. They use their possessions for the good of others. They are chaste and do not surrender to lust. They build wholesome bonds with their family members and households. They seek the good of the world in which they live. Their piety, their holiness, is as much an inward reality as it is an outward act. They assemble together as a body. They confess their faith in the triune God at stand with their fellow Christians, even at the cost of their own lives. Oh, see how they love one another. How we live together and how we love one another matters. The centerpiece of this letter that Paul has written to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But in case I am delayed in coming to you, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of faith, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. This centerpiece has implications for what the church believes. But this centerpiece, Paul is laboring with Timothy to show him that it has implications for how the church lives. For how the church not only believes rightly, but lives rightly. It has implications for relationships with one another. Every genuine follower of Jesus Christ is your brother or sister in the faith, if you yourself are a genuine follow, follower of Jesus. That means that they are family. They are people for whom Christ has died. And the Bible makes clear that we ought to be concerned for one another. We ought to be concerned for members of the household of faith. In fact, 1 John will say in 1 John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, listen to what John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for our brothers. So John tells us that not loving our fellow brothers and sisters is evidence that we have not passed from death to life. The way Christians treat each other is extremely important. The way Christians treat each other is indicative of our relationship with Christ. And so what we saw in chapter 4 is Paul calling young Timothy to proclaim and to live out the truth. And now when we reach chapter 5, we hear Paul honing in on the way the church is, church is to treat and to love and to care for one another. And over the course of the next few weeks, Paul is going to unpack a number of relationships. Today, he's going to talk about how we care for widows. Next week, about how we care for elders. The following week, about bond servants. The following week, about the rich. Paul unpacks all of these various relationships to show how it is that a diverse church comes together in unity how to live together as the household of faith. 
And the question that's before us through our passage that we heard read this morning is, how do we care for those among us who have great needs? The amount of space that's given to this issue of widows and caring for one another is a clear indication for us that this was a pressing issue. There were problems as it pertained to caring for widows in the church at Ephesus. And if we're not careful, we run the risk of turning a blind eye toward the problems that they had, and in doing so, making the same mistakes. And so in hopes of not making the same mistakes, and in hopes of learning from the church at Ephesus, we'll open the word and we'll walk through 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. Before we do, I would like to pray. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your word would teach us this morning. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. And though we hear this morning the voice of a mere man in this sermon, I pray that through it you would allow us to hear your voice and to understand your words and to obey them. And so would you help us to that end? Grant us grace as we seek to honor you. Allow us to behold you rightly. Give us understanding that we may care well for those in great need. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This morning we are going to be in verses 1 through 16. And so the question that I've been asking as I've read through this over and over is just, so what instructions does Paul give Timothy? about how the church is to care for and to love those with great needs. I believe he gives Timothy and us, by extension, three directives. And then we'll conclude with a reminder at the end. Three directives on how the church is to love those with great need. And a concluding reminder. So number one, how does the church love those with great need? They correct one another in love. They correct one another in love. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. And so it would do us well to remember the context. The context is that false teaching is rampant in this church. Elders have even uh, been exposed as those who are perpetuating false teachers. Some professing Christians have walked away from the faith because of false teaching. Older saints looking down on younger pastors as though younger pastors have nothing to teach older saints. Confusion over roles in corporate worship. When we gather, who does what? And drifting away from biblical qualifications for elders and deacons. That's the context in which Paul is writing this to young Timothy. And it's clear that much instruction and correction is needed for this church. Make no mistake about it, this church needed to be corrected. But the manner in which it was to be given was of utmost importance. The command sits on us, do not sharply rebuke. Rebuke can literally mean to strike. And it carries with it this idea of speaking with strong disapproval as a type of punishment. It it would be the type of speech, the type of, of tone that someone in authority would carry and speak at if one of their inferiors got out of line. And it's clear, it's clear that as we read, do not sharply rebuke an older man, that we understand that Paul is not telling Timothy 
to not confront older men. He's not telling Timothy, don't confront. He's not telling Timothy, don't address sin in others. No, he's telling Timothy, when you do confront, you must know how to do it. You must know how to do it. And I think this is a good word for us, even today, church. We, we need to hear this. We are not called to sweep sin under the rug. We're not called to avoid needed moments of confrontation. We're not called to not rebuke those that are in need of it. But we must know how to do so to differing groups of people. When it comes to needed rebuke, the Bible makes clear that there's not a one size that fits all. There's not a one size that fits all. And how Paul applies rebuking to these various groups. He mentions older men and older women. He mentions younger men and younger women. And each group is likened to a different part of a family. And in the, in the course of the needed rebuke, Timothy must remember who he's rebuking. He's rebuking family. And maybe, maybe your experience of family doesn't carry much weight, but it does biblically. It was everything. Paul greets Timothy from God the Father in chapter 1. The foundational reality about the Spirit of God coming into those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. Romans 8 Uh, 14 through 17 tells us that whenever the Spirit of God comes into those who do repent, they are then raised from the dead, they're given life, and the Spirit then cries out. Do you know what the Spirit cries out? Abba, Father. It means everyone who has the Spirit is united, same Father, meaning the reality is that they are brothers and sisters. And, And Paul says in Romans 8 that that is testifying that we are indeed children of God. We've been given the spirit of adoption and we're brought into the family of God. And that adoption not only changes our standing with God, it changes our standing with other brothers and sisters, with other Christians. And this is what the church is intended by God to be. It's to be the redeemed family of Christ Jesus. And that's not just things that are good for the church to do for the sake of the church. That's also one of the primary evangelistic tools of how the church is going to display the wonder and the majesty and the grandeur of God. Specifically, Paul says, when you're rebuking, we don't rebuke sharply. We don't rebuke harshly. He says we appeal to older men as fathers. The word word appeal there, it captures both respect and honor. Let it be clear, there were older saints that needed to be rebuked. That was true then, it's true today, and it will be true whenever you reach older sainthood. Rebuke needed to happen. And you rebuke and you correct an older saint by an honorable appeal, not by harsh, violent words and tone. You appeal honorably like you would your father, like you should your father. And so Paul tells Timothy, do not sharply rebuke an older man. He's worthy of respect and honor. Even when his sin, even when the need for rebuke would say one thing, you are governed not merely by the need of the moment, you're governed by remembering who he is. He's a redeemed brother of Christ who needs your care and correction and so honorably appeal to him as a father. And he says honorably, or he says the same thing about women. You are to not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. You're to not sharply rebuke an older woman, but to appeal to her as a mother. And so again, in the same way that you would correct your mother, some of you are old enough to do that. Some of you should 
at this point not be in the business, children, of correcting your mother. But in the same manner you would do that, you lovingly, you tenderly appeal to her. Not, you're not violent. You're not harsh. She's deserving of respect. And so that's the way in which you approach her and you correct her respectfully, humbly, tenderly. And in the same way, you, you don't sharply rebuke younger men. No, you appeal to them as brothers. And again, some of you would say, my brothers and I sharply rebuke each other. And maybe not how you do it, how you should do it. Younger men are, be, are to be treated like brothers. They are to be appealed to like a brother. There's an underlying loyalty and a commitment there that shows itself in kindness. And younger women, they're to be treated like sisters. That is, with love and concern. Not harshly rebuking, lovingly concerned for them. So you approach them and you correct. You approach them and you teach. You approach them and you admonish. And I, I believe there is some particular application to younger women here. It says right after younger women, in all purity. I, I do believe that there's particular application how Timothy was to conduct himself with younger women in all purity. But I don't think that it's only to younger women. I think in all purity even encapsulates how they are, uh, how Timothy is to appeal to older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. The idea of being admon admonished to do it in all purity makes us look back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one look down on you in your youthfulness, but rather in your speech, conduct, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe. One's conduct is to be honorable within God-honoring boundaries in relating to others so as to never, so as to never even give a hint of improper intimacy. As we read through this, even as a, a church, elders as a church, this has informed the kind of care that we seek to implement in our confrontations with the body and also in our purity with the body. So make, make no mistake about it. Correction is needed and correction will be needed. But it must be done with this searching of one's own heart, this wrestling at the throne of grace, begging God for spiritual wisdom on how to do it. And so we would be served to confront others in their sin the way that Christ has confronted us in ours. Christ didn't confront you harshly but lovingly, restoratively, redemptively. And so we care for one another by correcting one another in love. Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, puts it this way, from God's perspective, the only reason we confront one another is that we love the Lord and we want to obey Him. <clears throat> Our failure to confront one another biblically must be seen for what it is, something rooted in our tendency to run after God replacements. We confront unbiblically or not at all because we love something more than we love God. Perhaps we love our relationship with the person so much that we do not want to risk it. Perhaps we prefer to avoid the personal sacrifices and the complications that the confrontation may involve. Perhaps we may love peace and respect and appreciation more than we should, but a faithful follower of Jesus will have in his belt the ministry of confrontation. Are you willing to lovingly correct others in the family of God? 
And think about the last few times you have corrected others. Are you doing it in a God-honoring way? It leads us to the second way Paul encourages us to live together. So, number one, correct one another in love. Number two, to honor true widows. Honor true widows. We see this in verses 3 through 10. Three times in this section, 3 through 10, or actually 3 through, uh, really 3 through 16. Um, three times in this section, Paul mentions this phrase, widow indeed, or widows truly, or truly widows. We see it in verse 3, we see it in verse 5, and we see it in verse 16. Paul's overarching concern from verses 3 through 16 is that those widows who are receiving support should genuinely need it. And I realize that we can sort of jump into this conversation from verse 3 to verse 16, talking about widows as though it's a theological category, as though it's this uh, merely just a, a, a theological discussion that we can have. And this week, as I've been praying just through the directory, just thinking about this is not merely a theological category for some of you. I mean, this issue of being a widow brings about a hard and painful reality. You've lost a spouse. Maybe even in another way, been deserted by one. My heart's been heavy for those that have experienced that this week. And my prayer has been that God would grow our church in how we honor true widows. How we care for those that are more vulnerable. The context for what Paul is writing to Timothy about is drastically different from ours. There was no safety nets like a 401k. There were no nursing homes or assisted living facilities. It was either your biological family or the church. Those were the only two that would step in to provide for the needs of widows. And if you remember, even where we see kind of the precedent of deacon in Acts chapter 6, this is exactly what was happening. Widows were being forgotten in getting their daily ration of food. The word honor, Paul says, verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Honor. It means to give them what they are due, particularly in regards to financial needs being met. And we, we know this because next week, we'll see in verse 17, he uses that word honor again, speaking of elders, as providing, for financial, uh, for providing financially for, for needs. The church is to so love one another that whenever there's a true widow among us, we show that we belong to Christ by meeting their needs. Just this week, I've been praying, writing out a few prayers as I've walked through this passage, uh, just going, God, I pray that there would be an increase of older saints in our church because covenant life has a reputation for caring well for aged and vulnerable brothers and sisters. Many people ask for help. So how do we know who to provide for, who to care for? And what's interesting is that he's going to talk about widows indeed. And then later on, he's going to talk about a list. And so putting people on a list who need ongoing financial support, ongoing care and support, it, it, it seems at odd. It seems that carefully identifying and selecting those in need that seems to be at odd with compassion. But I think what we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is that when we are responsible in showing compassion, we, maxim we maximize our effectiveness in being compassionate. When we do due diligence to ensure that those that are asking for help genuinely need help, it maximizes our helpfulness. Paul paints a qualification list of those who were truly widows, those who were widows indeed. 
And so what he's going to say isn't just for any widow in the world. It's not for every widow in the world. But it's for those in the church that are truly needing support. And so what's the list? Kind of what's the qualification, the criteria that he gives? Well, he he spells them out. First, we see a true widow has no family to support her. We see this in verse 4. If a widow has an able-bodied, working-aged child or grandchild, then she's not a true widow. And when I'm saying she's not a true widow, what Paul isn't saying is that she hasn't experienced loss. It's that she hasn't, she's not completely destitute in her loss. And so Paul's making clear that if she has able-bodied, working-aged children and grandchildren, that she's not a completely destitute widow. And that may sound harsh, until we remember just what God has, what what Paul has already referenced in the letter in First Timothy chapter, chapter two, about God's good design for the family. Remember the gender roles that we talked about, and we saw the 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 goodness in that design. We're reminded back in Genesis chapter two the goodness of the institution of the family. And here Paul maintains the priority of the family as the one who has obligation to care for family. The church was not intended to be the first line of care for widows, but the church is to be the second. There was a serious problem in Ephesus. Believing children and grandchildren were passing off their God-given responsibilities to the church. They were presuming upon the church to do what they were responsible to do before the Lord, that is, caring and providing for their widowed mothers or grandmothers. And Paul pulls no punches to just make clear we understand how serious this is. Look at what he says in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Even those whose lives testify that there is no God? Even even the pagans treat their families better than some of you professing Christians do. That's the weight and the sting of what Paul is saying. Failure to care and to provide for biological families is a way in which we renounce our faith in Christ. I just think even about members of this church. I think about the decisions that, that Jim and, and Holly made to come and to, to care for aging parents. I think of the ways in which Lynette hit pause on missionary dreams to be able to come down and to care for her widowed grandmother. That kind of good work preaches. That kind of good work makes a God of compassion look really, really good. And Paul gives two reasons why this is a good work. Why is this a good work? He says in verse 4, because there is a debt that we owe our parents and grandparents. It is good to go through life being cared for by your parents and your grandparents and to live long enough to where you then get to repay that care back to them. That's a good thing. But the second reason that he gives, it's not just this issue of repayment. It's because it's pleasing to God. It's acceptable in the sight of God. So this, one, this morning, I wonder if there are real needs in your family that you are turning a blind eye towards. This morning, I wonder if there are non-Christians in your family that are providing for those in need better than you are. You have an opportunity to walk in obedience and walk in repentance. So true widows had the, were those who had no family to support them But secondly, they also, true widows, were those who hoped in God and persevered in prayer. 
They hoped in God and persevered in prayer. You see this in verses 5 and 6. The one who has been left alone is the one who's continuing to put her trust and her hope in God. She's trusting that God will provide what she's lacking. I, I, I think of Ruth in the Old Testament. I think of Anna in the New Testament. Just Acts chapter 2, verse 37. She's a widow at the age of 84. And she never leaves the temple because she's serving day and, day and night with fasting and with prayer. And this is a widow who has committed herself to serving the Lord. And sometimes we can think that the, the loneliest place to be is when we make the decision to give our lives in service to others. And what, and what God, through Paul, is saying to those that are willing to give them, themselves in service to others is that if you will faithfully give yourself in, in service to others, you can trust God to care for you. He will provide for you. A true widow hopes in God. She goes to God for answers, and she goes to God for help. She doesn't turn to others. Like the persistent widow of Luke 18, or like the widow who gave two mites in Mark chapter 12, she is continuing. Her loss has not informed her service. It's not been reason to quit serving. She's continuing to hope in God. Verse 5 is the biblical commendation of what this true widow looks like. Verse 6 is the opposite. Verse 6 is what a godless widow is marked by. She doesn't live for God, verse 6. She lives for pleasure. The godly widow of verse 5 thinks, thinks of little but the Lord. The godless widow of verse 6 thinks little of the Lord. The godly widow of verse 5 trusts God to provide. The godless widow of verse 6 seeks pleasure and provision in earthly things. And if the church were to be consistently supporting the godless widow of verse 6, the church is wasting resources to be helping the godly widows of verse 5. And that's why this is important. And don't miss the scathing indictment that he even gives to these godless widows. That when you live for worldly pleasures and pursuits, when you're showing that you trust in the world more than God, you can be dead even while you live. How haunting a description. And the thing is, is that's not only true of godless widows, it's true of all who are without God. Dead, even while you live. And so the punchline really for this true widow who's hoping in God and persevering in prayer, how does God answer her hope and how does God answer her prayers? I believe 1 Timothy chapter 5 is telling us that one of the ways that he's answering her hopes and her prayers is through the church. Through the church. The way God designs to answer her prayers and to conquer her loneliness and to meet her needs when her family is gone is through His family. The saints who worship with her are an answer to her prayers and they are God's provision, which is why in verse 7, Paul says, Timothy, prescribe, command these things. This isn't just information for widows. This is information for the church. The church should know how they ought to care for those who are truly widows. I wonder this morning how you are the answer to a widow's prayer in this church. And then the third requirement for how we know what a true widow is, we see in verses 9 and 10. A true widow was a faithful spouse over 60 years of age 
whose life has been spent serving others. A faithful spouse over 60 whose life has been spent in faithful service to others. And so you see the picture that's emerged. There's no family to support her. She's hoping in God and persevering in prayer and and she's a faithful spouse. She's over 60 and she's given her lives her life to faithfully serve. The list continues so as to ensure that the right widows are receiving support. He lists the age at least 60. Why 60? Because uh, most commentators would uh, agree and believe that if they were younger, then they were likely to have the vitality to provide in some measure for themselves or to find a spouse. And so they were to be over 60, then similar to the qualification for elders and deacons, She was to be a one-man woman, which we said about that qualification, it clearly highlights faithfulness in the marriage, and it depends on how you define the nature of the marriage covenant to understand what the scope of that means. But you're looking for a lady who has been faithful in her marriage. And a true widow has established a track record for love and faithfulness towards God by her life of love and faithfulness to her husband, to possible children. God is now here for her in the latter years of her life. She brought up children selflessly for the long haul. Doesn't mean that she had to have biological children. Was she faithful to bring up women. She showed hospitality. She extended God's care to outsiders. She devoted herself to all manner of good deeds. She washed others' feet. She helped those that were in trouble. I mean, I'm I'm just reading over this list about this lady who spent her life in beautiful service to the Lord and to the church. And I'm just thinking, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of a godly woman in the New Testament. And it's tucked away in this obscure passage about widows. And she didn't do this after she became a widow so that she would get on a list. She was doing this all throughout her marriage, showing herself to be faithful Showing herself to provide for others so when the time needed, God through his church would provide for her. When you walk in faith with Christ, the more you see how you've been served, the more you will be moved to serve others. The more you see Christ laying down his life for you, the more gladly you will lay down your life for others. It should be a comfort to every woman in this church that if your spouse passes from this life into eternity or you are the last surviving member of your family, that you will be cared well for by this church. You will not be left alone. This is the kind of care and commitment that's found nowhere else in this world. I was even reading about the culture of honoring parents that India has. And yet India is not fail-safe. The church is until glory. No godly widow is left behind. Perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. And you're thinking to yourself, uh, I have no problem honoring my father, uh, my mother, my grandmother, the widows in my church. I don't understand how this is uniquely Christian. And sadly, uh, the church has not been exemplary in how we care for widows. And if you're here and that's you, I just want to thank you for being a model of sound morality. And I think if you're not a Christian, you would help us Christians whenever you see a professing Christian living in a way that doesn't seem to line up with a Christian's doctrine to just ask them. How do you reconcile that? But though you may live better in some respects, 
you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to remind you that even your moral life is not good enough to satisfy the standard of God. You will never by your own morality be reconciled and made right with God because there is a war that is waging between you and God and you declared it when you pursued self over Christ. It's the nature in which you were born into this world with. When you went after your own way rather than keeping faith and covenant with him, when you trust yourself rather than trusting him, I hope you realize that one of the surest ways to suffer the eternal judgment of God for sin is to present your righteousness to God. One of the ways that you will guarantee that you will suffer God's wrath for sin is to just present God with your righteousness. There's enough sin in your righteousness to condemn you before God. And so perhaps you're here and you're thinking, you know what, I honor my parents. Praise God. But have you ever disobeyed them? And if you have, then there's the problem. The problem is that within all of the righteousness that you can perform, there is mixed within it sin, not being righteous. Your good is laced together with sin, and all of your best deeds are laced with sinful bent and imperfection. And you may think this morning, well, if my good will outweigh my bad, then I will be accepted with God. The problem is that no one ever takes the time to write down all of the bad. It's overwhelming. We're guilty. The reason that we don't do that is because good is not what we naturally do. Sin is what we naturally do. We have to train ourselves to do good. We drift towards lust, we drift towards anger, we drift towards unkindness. And this is why your good deeds will never outweigh your bads. Bad deeds. And so that's terrible news without any hope if it weren't for the work of Christ. The work of Christ where he would live righteously, perfect. And that could be credited to you if you will turn from your sin and unrighteousness. But he didn't just live, he didn't just take on likeness and live a perfect life. He gives his life as a ransom. He dies a sinner's death, absorbing the wrath of God that is due everyone who sins against a holy God. And so there's a way that you can have his righteousness credited to you, and there's a way in which your wrath-deserving death can be transferred onto him to where you're spared wrath and you're given perfection. You're given righteousness. This is the good news of the Christian faith. It doesn't make sense why a God would love like this. But he does in order to make sinners his children. He was crucified and he was buried and he was raised on the third day and he sits at the Father's right hand waiting for the day that he shall return. The good news this morning, no matter how well you think your morality stands up, it does not stand up to God's standard. But there is hope because Christ's work does. And if you will turn from yours and trust in his, then you can know what it's like to know a God who loves to make sinners his children. I would plead with you if you're not a Christian, turn to Christ today. Turn to him today. Leads us to the last ministry piece, warn younger widows. Warn younger widows. We see this in verses 11 through 16. So not only are we to correct one another in love, not only are we to honor true widows, we are to warn younger widows It is possible to hurt people in your efforts to help them. And that's what Paul makes clear to Timothy. It seems like there were younger widows that were abusing a system. They were being put on permanent care list. All the while, they were consumed with the desire to to marry again. They were becoming lazy. They were becoming gossips. And they harmed the church. 
And remember, they're in an environment where false teachers are coming in and they're forbidding marriage. And so maybe these younger widows were thinking, well, we can't get married again, so we'll just, we'll just live off of what the church is providing. But with all of the life that we have to live, instead of harnessing and using it for good, we'll just gossip and we'll be lazy and we'll hurt the church. Paul was concerned about the spiritual well-being for these younger women. He says putting younger women on this list would fan into flame a desire that would then overcome their dedication to Christ. They would desire to, to, to marry, even though they said that they wouldn't. They would desire to hurt, harm the church with their idleness, even though they said that they wouldn't. Putting younger widows on this list would stir up vice in place of virtue. What happens when you take young, strong, able-bodied individuals and you give them everything that they want? They turn into entitled people who are destroyed. When a parent gives a child everything they want, give them more and more and more and more, they don't grow more appreciative. They grow more demanding and entitled. And this actually destroys virtue in the child. And when the church puts younger widows on this list of ongoing permanent care, it hurts the virtue in these widows. And so how then should a church avoid these potential problems? Paul gives Timothy one solution with four parts. Encourage them to marry. Go against, undo what it is that these false teachers were doing. Marriage isn't bad. Encourage them to marry. Encourage them to have children. Encourage them to manage their home and encourage them to give the enemy no opportunity for slander or harm. Paul calls these young widows to live out the gospel in their regular domestic day-to-day life. And verse 15 tells us that this is urgent. Nothing could be more important to the health of a young widow than pastors and a church family faithfully calling them to turn from their sin and to pursue Christ. And so how we live with one another matters and how we love and care for one another matters. We are to confront one another in love. We are to honor true widows and we are to warn younger widows. And sort of the reminder that I want to just close with this morning is don't miss the heart of God in all of this. It would be easy to listen to a set of rules and to a list and to think, okay, it's pretty mechanical. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has a heart of compassion for the vulnerable. Widows who are highlighted here are among some of the most vulnerable. God loves vulnerable people. Psalm 68, verse 5, Exodus 22, verses 22 and 23. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And if you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled. He is a protector of the widow. Widows are named among some of the most vulnerable. His heart spills over into his actions of compassion for widows. They are taken advantage of. We see this all throughout Deuteronomy. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, a big conversation is happening within the people of God. And that conversation even looks like a conversation that's happening today about what it looks like to, to love the vulnerable. The ditches of going way too far and adopting the philosophies of this world and seeking to bring them into the church. And the other ditch of just saying, It doesn't matter what we do. All we do is preach truth. No, we have been transformed by the gospel. Then we are to listen and to love and to serve the vulnerable. There will always be widows. And God will always love them. And so widows in this faith family, and and though you may not feel always loved and respected and cared for in the world. God loves you deeply, and by his grace, Covenant Life Church will love you consistently. Uh, Just even thinking about the ways in which I have failed at this. But loving the most vulnerable is evidence of genuine faith. James 1.27 makes clear how we are to love. 
true religion is loving the most vulnerable. Our religion is proven to be true by the compassion that we have for one another. And so Covenant Life Church, our lean is to be towards one another, constantly looking for needs and asking, how can I meet the needs of those around me? How can we as a church love those that are vulnerable in our midst? When we become Christians, we began the process of looking more and more like Jesus. And this has nothing to do with long hair and a beard and first century clothing. It has everything to do with the character of Christ. To love like the Father loved. To love the saints like Christ loved. To love the vulnerable like Christ loved. Love all of them the way Christ loves them. But this kind of love threatens another love that if left unchecked, we will go to our graves cherishing, and that's the love for self. We are far more concerned with ourselves than to take ownerships, ownership of the burdens of others. We often don't even take time to get to know others so as to know their burdens. And God has great pity for those that are in need. And we ought to align our hearts with his. When I came to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this week, I just thought, this is a less than exciting passage to preach. And I'm sort of ashamed to even say that, but I thought that. I was just thinking, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody's life verse pulled from 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 through 16. Uh, But what a fool am I for thinking such thoughts. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 through 16, we are brought to the very heart of God for the vulnerable. And here's the truth. In our sin, we're all vulnerable because the wrath of God abides on us. And it doesn't matter our bank account, the square footage of our house, the career path that we're on. If we're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, we are most vulnerable. And the gospel is all over this passage because it's a picture of the God who reaches out to sinners. Christ coming to take the penalty and to set free those that are vulnerable. He moves his children from vulnerable to secure. Jesus and the gospel, it's all over 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in part, that's why it matters how we live together. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would take your word, you would accomplish its purposes in making us a people that are more conformed to your heart. And so help us where we need to confess and to repent from not not caring well for others, not confronting others. I pray that you would grow us to be a church that has compassion. And so in this moment of silence, would you speak now? We're listening.